and gentlemen, boys and girls, monster kids of all ages, let's get ready to Lucha! It's Lucha de Mayo. My, darn it, I did it again. Lucha de Mayo here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Welcome to episode 367 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, a host, producer, and luchador monster movie fanatic. This month on Monster Kid Radio, we are covering... Luchador monster movies. Luchador movies from the 60s and 70s from Mexico that have a science fiction or horror element thrown into the mix. Those are the best kind of Luchador movies as far as I'm concerned. And I am stoked to get into it this week, this month, here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm not doing it by myself, though. I've got some tag team partners along for the ride. If you head over to monsterkidradio.net, you'll see that I just posted a list of the five movies we're talking about this month. Five movies. This because there's five Thursdays in May. There are five Luchador monster movies we're talking about here on the show. Next week, we're talking about Santo and Dracula's Treasure. The week after that, Santo and Blue Demon Against the Monsters. The week after that, a movie called Santo Against the Killers from Other Worlds, also known as Santo vs. The Blob. And then finally, at the end of May, we're doing Samson and the Vampire Women. This week, though, this week, we're doing one of my absolute favorite luchador movies it's called the champions of justice from 1971 are there any monsters in it no not really but there's a crazy mad scientist and that's science fiction enough for me to talk about it here on monster kid radio and i'm not doing it by myself i've got one of my favorite guys one of my favorite authors joining me this week frank Schildener. Now, Frank and I are going to break down this movie, talk about what these movies mean to us. Of course, we're going to play the Classic Five. He's going to bring up some other movies to make some points that come out of nowhere. And because I'm kind of selfish, I started picking his brain about writing. I, I apologize, but it's a fun conversation. I think it's an important conversation, and I think you guys and gals, you monster kids, are going to dig it. Now, that's not all that's happening this week. Of course, we have Michael Dodd's Vault of Monster Collectibles, and a little bit of feedback, which means my wife Brenda is back on the show this week as well to help with the feedback, to help with Michael Dodd's segment. That's all coming up after the conversation with me and Frank, and that's happening right after this. a superstition. Now there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why? On one night of one year should these people live in mortal fear? Mendes. 
Christopher Lee as de Richelieu, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. My God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex! Eyes. Eyes. Once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. The Devil's Bride, from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's The Devil Rides Out, fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. On your feet quickly! Back to back! Join hands! You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. We once catch sight of his face. Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. Nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks Shem- like melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. Tonight, 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 the world's most horrible combination of the decade. Showing in blood-curdling color. See, a most diabolical story of sacrifices to a non-human creature in Brides of Blood. Starring John Ashley. The second unbelievable terror will scare the pure living yell out of you. When you see Christopher Lee in Blood Fiend, a pre-engagement ring set will be given to the girls who attend. Tonight, it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. If the Brides of Blood don't get you... The Blood Fiend must. So, will we see you tonight? This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get... Excited. 
and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, not even trouble with a randomly rebooting computer will keep me from talking to one of my favorite tag team partners this week on Monster Kid Radio. Frank Schildener, welcome to the show. Thank you, Derek, and welcome everybody to Lucha de Mayo. <laughs> I, I, my favorite time of the year after Halloween, obviously. What is it about these movies, man? I, I love don't them. know. I don't know, but I am addicted. I am so. I have. It's become right up there with the sword and sandal movies. I can't get enough of them. That's right. That's right. And we're going to talk about all that. We're going to get into it. We're going to talk about the movie on deck this week. But, you know, when I pull up Skype, it tells me the last time you and I have actually chatted, like voice to voice, we talk on Facebook all the time, but the last time it's been like three months. So what's been up in the world of Frank Children? What books are you cranking out now? Well, um, (laughs) I've got a lot coming out from Pro Se Publication. I mean, I've got four novellas coming out this year from them. Some pretty cool stuff. One of them is a uh, original series, sort of a 1960s spy slash supernatural series, kind of similar to uh, Dennis Wheatley, <gasps> with, with a little bit of a more 60s, which he wouldn't have exactly loved because he didn't like hippies or anything like that. That's fun stuff. I have, at, towards the end of the year, I have another original that is a Roman a uh, pre-imperial story that is more of a uh, it's more horror and fantasy put in it with totally Roman stories. It's called the Karen Valerius stories. Kara uh, is a Roman adoptee, really. She's a German swordswoman, a gladiatrix. And her employer is Marcus Valerius um, Corvinus who is one of the oldest families in all of Rome, so it's noble Roman lineage. And it's from his point of view, and because he's Roman, his point of view is totally skewered in, in, in the weirdest ways. It's so skewed, I mean. It is so, you know, he, he will talk about one of the moments they're doing a story in Sparta that about how beautiful Greece is, and he's thinking that it would be paradise on earth if it wasn't filled with Greek people. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, which is what wow. a Roman really thought back then. It was, it, it, you know, it's like the Romans are the best in the world and where everybody else is a barbarian. And he's always, you know, making allowances for his closest friend, Kara, who is this tall, blonde uh, swordswoman who has a much more realistic point of view of the world. I love her. I also wrote uh, another Thunder Jim Wade. And that's a very Lovecraftian kind of story. I wrote uh, two other stories with them. Uh, that was the, the Horrors of Hyperborea from some years ago. It was the last mm-hmm, one I wrote mm-hmm. them. And there's a very famous villain character that made it into Weird Tales, the great pulp magazine, called Dr. Satan. Oh, yes. I love Dr. Satan. I just love that (laughs) character. I actually wrote him a year or two ago in a character uh, as the villain against a guy named Ivy Frost, who's kind of a scientific uh, 
pulp uh, Sherlock Holmes. I was asked by Tommy Hancock, the uh, publisher of Pro Se, to write him in a modern story. So I wrote this modern story where he has these, he always has very unusual assistants and his unusual assistants are based on a couple of characters from a sitcom of one of the classic sitcoms. I'm not going to say which, but when you figure it out, it's one of the funniest jokes that keeps running through the story. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a really demented, enjoyable story with Dr. With Dr. Satan um, in a kind of protagonist role, but not being, he's still as evil as he ever was. After that, I have um, two novels that are coming out. Um, uh, the Satanic Gangs of New York, which is set in the 1800s in New York. And it's kind of a unusual story, as you can tell by the name. And <laughs> um, I have my first fantasy novel coming out. Uh, well, that's probably in February, I believe called uh, The Red God's Rage, which is a very uh, sword and sandals, Conan, dark fantasy kind of thing. And here or there, I have a couple of short stories coming out here or there all over the place. So it's a big year for me. And at some point, ladies and gentlemen, Frank finds time to sleep, I wish work his day job, and, <laughs> and teach martial arts. So it's like there you go. nonstop. I'm right now working on a new one that is a kind of uh, – uh, I can't use the word steampunk because it's not, but it's like a kind of like the movie Metropolis in the future, uh, but it's really the 1920s, 30s area. It's a uh, unusual story that involves uh, science fiction in a in a world where World War One never happened. So it's very unusual. Huh. That's my latest. And after that, I start a so a story that is a sci-fi horror. That is set in Soviet Union, 1951. So that's my 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 writing these days. <laughs> so I I know this isn't the writing podcast or anything like that, but you know I, I'm a writer and and I'm curious because I'm I'm working on something that's kind of a period piece myself right now. With all of your work, all these period pieces, do you rely on the films of the era? Because I know you watch a lot of movies, like I do. Do you rely on the films of the era, or where do you do? Where do you do your research or where do you get your research when it comes to making sure these things are period appropriate? I do it from all spots. Um, I do it from the movies. I do it from, from the books of the period. I do it from writers of history about the period. I, you know, I, I go from a lot of sources. I do have two other things, but I'd like to mention them at the end. Actually, two more books. I just realized. <laughs> what? Two more books? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll mention that at the end. We have something. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. I can't believe I forgot either. Um, well, with all your working on, I'm not surprised. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I do a great deal of research, um, much to the delight of my wife, because I print out so much paperwork, and it just piles up everywhere. And she's looking at me like, really? why is this here and she'll pick up something it's like you know she just rolls her eyes she doesn't even ask why she just sort of just says just just find a spot for it <laughs> which <laughs> you, well a smart man marries somebody who uh, who is tolerant of his craziness and she's a saint that way she really is because there ain't nobody nutsy as me when it comes to this stuff and when i research and literally like have files Full of like articles on way people spoke, the attitudes of the period. And then I synthesize it because some things that people 
would consider correct at that period would be very hard to read, especially racism and sexism. And you have to keep some of it, but you can't, if you do it purely in the period, it almost becomes a history book. And that's not why somebody's sitting down to read one of my books. Gotcha. You want to read something in the 1890s uh, that is very historically accurate, that's fictional, read Ragtime. You know, that, that'd be the book to read of that of that period, for example. But okay. I'm going to give you a synthesis that I can so that it's more readable and, and moves. And it doesn't feel like I'm lecturing you on how somebody dresses and how somebody walks. <laughs> okay, no, fair enough, fair yeah, enough, I a, think. That's, you know, your first time I ever asked it, so this is coming right out of the, you know, the, the, the back of the brain. I, don't, I didn't really ever concentrate on how I do it. But that's the synthesis that it really works through. Gotcha, okay. All right. Yeah, it's something that I've, I've been curious about. And, and honestly, the thing that's been kind of holding me up the most when it comes to, you know, trying to create fiction, a media uh, reminiscent of the, like, say, the 50s. And I know there's a couple amazing filmmakers that do it. Uh, Christopher R. Mim, Joshua Kennedy, they, they're able to, to imbue what they do with that vibe. Uh, Stephen D. Sullivan, an incredible author who yes. does it with his I, books. I um, especially love Stephen Sullivan. I really, yeah. he's a great guy. Uh, and Dwight Kemper did, did it as no, well with his books. Yep. You know, and then obviously with the stuff that you've done as well, you've got some period pieces that. You know, I say period pieces, and I, and I don't want people to think it's like, oh, you know, the stuffy kind of 1800s, everybody's wearing a suit. No, 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 no. I'm talking about like, you know, this, this our sweet spot. Yes. You know, big old scorpion style. You know, come on. <laughs> yeah, a, a 1950s rockabilly sim- singer dealing with a giant scorpion is how I go. Don't, That's don't right. ever expect me to write uh, Vanity, uh, you know, Vanity Fair. Uh, I, can't, <laughs> I, I had to read that stuff when I was growing up. I don't have to do it again. There you go. There yeah. you go. Now, the the real thing here is um, the best you can do for yourself is to understand what people want to read. I mean, Elmore Leonard, the great mystery uh, adventure writer, Western, such a prolific writer, once said that what he does is he cuts out the, pe- the stuff people just don't want to read. Well, it, it, it's an, a simple way of putting it that – if somebody goes to one of my books, and I'm only going to use mine because I understand them best, I think. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> I would hope. <laughs> I hope, but you know, I, you know, I've had, I've read about people, you know, arguing with writers saying, "No, that's not what you meant," uh, you know. So, okay, Elmore Leonard <laughs> basically was saying that if you go to to an Elmore Leonard novel, you're not looking to get a slice of the 50s life, the 60s, 70s, 80s life. You're getting a piece of it and a a great adventure story with interesting characters from him. For me, you're getting A, B, C, D with the history in there. If you do anything else, I I honestly, I think you're almost like you're talking down to the reader. And that's the last thing they want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't want to deal with that where, you know, you get these fantasy novels where people are describing in such massive details the society, the way people dress, the the magic, whatever it is. And you cut off a part of your readership, I think, by doing that. Whereas, you know, you get a George R.R. Martin who could have these massive tomes and, 
you learn the story and the characters and the concepts without having to feel like you're getting a history lesson in his fiction. Okay, so. to be fair, though, George R. R. Martin does spend an awful lot of time describing banquets. Oh, so I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> in the end, those banquets always lead to something else. Well, that's true. That yeah, is I mean, true. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're, they're, well, I think it's changed the way we use the word banquet at this point. <laughs> he, he's literally changed the lexicon of the world through this stuff. So, you know, got to give the man that. He, <laughs> he'll do a lot of description, but he'll do it the right way. You won't feel like you're getting a history lesson. He'll put the history through the story by sprinkling it. <laughs> Which is why we still don't know a heck of a lot, despite the TV show, about many of the characters. I, I know we're kind of sidelining, and this is not exactly why people are uh, <laughs> signing in to listen to Monster Kid Radio. So I appreciate everybody's patience as I indulge myself. I have a, an excellent writer on the show. I just wanted to pick his brain for a second. Uh, and we will talk about what's coming up for you, these other two mystery books that you are teasing me with at the end of the show. But before we get into the Luchador movies, uh, there's still one more thing we need to do, and you know what that is. Oh, yeah. You know, we got to play the Classic Five, man. Classic Five. I love Classic Five. Got to play the Classic Five. For listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a game we play here on the show to let listeners learn a little bit more about our incredible guests. I've got a deck of cards here. And in this deck of cards, we've got questions about classic monster movies, this or that, yes or no style questions. There are no wrong answers. Frank, are you ready to play? I am ready and looking forward to it. All right, so here we go. Right off the top, what is your favorite black and white zombie movie? White zombie. Not even a second thought on that one. Really? Ah, I love white zombie. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all. Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see death. Master of the Undead Damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. Zombies? Yes. They are my servants. Oh, God. Bela Lugosi and... The setting, the implications in those stories, even the music. Uh, I ugh, White Zombie is one of my absolute favorite uh, movies, let alone zombie movies. Not even a second thought there. Right on. Okay. Well, I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, this is actually something that I'm going to be talking about in a future YouTube video. Uh, I'm not going to say much more. Card number two. <laughs> What prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own? What prop from a classic monster movie would I like to own? Uh, that would have to be the cape that Bela Lugosi wore in the original Dracula movie. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I'm going to go for the thing I'll never get. <laughs> oh, that's true, yeah. Um, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. It's amazing. That's the movie that changed movies. I mean, it just changed. Yeah. I mean, especially our genre. I mean, no Dracula, nothing else happens. I, I just, I, I firmly believe that. It all came from from him, and then Frankenstein followed. All right, card number three. Oh, this is a green card, which means it's from our kaiju deck. Oh, good. What's your favorite flying kaiju? 
Favorite flying kaiju is King Ghidorah. No hesitation, huh? No hesitation. I love that one. I have always been a serious fan of the three-headed dragon whose name I could never get the first two or three times as a little kid. I just <laughs> called him the three-headed monster. <laughs> I love hey. Or Monster Zero, which is what they called him the first time I ever saw him. But uh, I just love that creature. It's such an amazing-looking visual with the... Chinese dragon heads and the graviton beams that came out of its mouth. And the fact that in three quarters of the movies, it's bigger than Godzilla. It's the biggest of them all, the scariest of them all. And Godzilla and Rodan, the other great flying monster right there, would take it on without second thought. I love those movies. Right on. All right. Card number four. Oh, it's red card. That's from the hammer deck. Ah, oh, love Hammer. All right. So, Frank, which movie do you prefer? The Vampire Lovers, Lust for a Vampire, or Twins of Evil? I would go for Twins of Evil. Even though I love The Vampire Lovers, it's a great movie. It's a very well-made movie. It kind of suffers at times from trying to be a little clever. Lust for a Vampire, that song they're playing, Strange Love, I'm watching this movie. It's like this is supposed to be the sexy scene. Don't get me wrong; the actress in it, the actresses in it, and specifically the vampire herself, is gorgeous, and it's very interesting. And I enjoy all Karnstein movies. I mean, I write the characters from that family, but it's so strange. But the last one, Twins of Evil, has an evil, terrifying Peter Cushing. It has. Baron Karnstein as twisted and openly twisted as it gets and has the Collins twins who are spectacularly gorgeous and background the, the background shows how awesomely gorgeous this hammer universe is for women because even the serving girls are like pinup models they're so gorgeous so I, I've always really had a good thing for twins of evil the coffin opens and terror reaches out from beyond the grave as the twins of evil evoke the power of vampirism and witchcraft twins of evil they use the satanic power of their bodies to turn men and women into their blood slaves twins of evil rated r under 17 not admitted without parents. it's a solid film man it's my favorite of the three as well so uh I'm in good company, apparently. Yeah, uh, it's, definitely. It's solid. So solid. It really is. Yeah, and, and I could gush and gush and gush about that. Um, not Not going to right now. We're not we going have to. We're card. not even close to what we're supposed to be talking about. Right. <laughs> All right. Card number five, Klaatu or Gort? Gort. I mean, not even a second thought. I wanted a movie about Gort and have him as the back. Klaatu as the background character. <laughs> I grew up loving Gort and wanting more Gort scenes. I always wanted more Gort scenes. One of these days, I have to get the classic three robots in miniature. Gort, the uh, Robbie the Robot, and the robot from Lost in Space. I just need three, those three one day in my collection. Wow. You would put Gort alongside those other two, huh? Oh, I love that. Well, Gort is the best to me of Oh, wow. Uh, okay. It has always fascinated me. The visual, the simplicity, the lines. It possessed the 
classic lines of the uh, of the dream future of the pulp stories. It was very. It, it, there's a classic simplicity to that character that amazes me. Robbie the robot. Don't get me wrong. Robbie always amazed me because of the fact that it was a mobile robot with the legs and the movement and the very fascinating voice and the whirring and all the details of the character were just fascinating and well-made. And I grew up watching the Lost in Space robot, and I loved his arguments with Jonathan Harris as Dr. Smith. I mean, they just cracked me up. And I met Jonathan Smith at ChillerCon many years ago. What a nice man he was. Uh, and he told a very funny story then to me when, you know, at conventions, people will ask these really strange questions. And he spent used to spend 45 or so minutes just telling you this really funny speech on how he got in the business. And he would act out all the characters like that he would meet, like the directors and the writers and the other actors. So it's obvious this was the thing he wanted and nobody was asking him the question. So I went into the book that had a written small biography and it said to him, uh, Rose raised my hand and I asked him how he got the job in Battlestar Galactica where he played Lucifer, the robot. And he smiled at me very big and he told me this story, uh, me and everybody in the audience of this story where they didn't have any clues. So he said he decided to, because he was supposed to be evil, make the character into like a cat. And he looked at me and said, but a very bad pussycat. <laughs> I just cracked up. And when I met him to sign it, he remembered my voice and he said, thank you. I really appreciated that question. So I have a great feeling for that robot as well as Jonathan Harris. Nice. Yeah. I thought you'd like that one. Hey, yeah. Um, well, I mentioned on a recent episode that we got some loss of space uh, material here now. And I, I discovered, and I had no idea, but I discovered that my wife grew up watching Lost in Space with her dad. So I'm, I'm eager to revisit Lost in Space with her. Uh, I don't have a lot of Lost in Space in me. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of it, and I've seen a handful of episodes, but I don't think I've actually sat down even given it a serious viewing. So. You'll enjoy um, it. You'll enjoy the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. You'll enjoy it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I was gifted the first season uh, box set, DVD set, so I'm, I'm eager to dive into that with Brenda just to see how it does. Hey, I've got a sixth bonus question for you in the Classic Five. Go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'm breaking format. All right. Frank, if you were a luchador fighting monsters, what would your luchador name be? Oh, I already created one, so I can use that. I have it. Oh. Haunt, I had <laughs> the character I one day I'm going to write, the Haunted Hangman. <laughs> Oh yeah, what's the mask look like? Oh, it's like a like a black mask uh, with white co- white around the eyes and the mouth. Uh, very classic, closer to the old school style that you see with like the the blue demon and all of that. So there you go, <laughs> the class. That's the character. So, okay, listeners, I hope you heard this. I asked him what his luchador name would be. He's like, oh, no, I'm already starting to write one. I'm going to have a story about it. See, Frank is a writer through and through. He's a machine. I say it on Facebook. I said it to him before we started recording. He is a writing, a storytelling machine. Listen to this. Oh, I've already got it. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just keep at it. It's just constant work. I'm not a guy who does uh, outlines or anything. So when I'm writing, I'm literally kind of in a fugue state and everything's coming out of the subconscious and it's just kind of flowing out like I'm translating the scene. And 
the only part of it that's mechanical to me is getting the wording right as I do it. But I'm seeing it almost like I'm watching a movie. I'm seeing the motion and the way the characters are talking and looking at each other and the visuals. That's why one of my friends, Winscott Eckerd, uh, is a great writer himself and really spectacular fiction writer, editor, and a great human being, too. He said that a lot of my books are very descriptive. There's a lot of description in every part of my books that uh, makes it. You know, that's my signature style, I guess. So I've, I kind of accept it because he's read my stuff. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. All right. So let, let's use this uh, this talk about Luchadors as a segue. Let's talk about Luchador films. And I, I know we've had you on the show before and we've talked about it and, and your history, you know, watching Mil Mascaris, seeing Mil Mascaris in person, that sort of thing. I don't know what it is about this particular subgenre. Some people on the internet – and I know people on the internet, yeah. but I know some people on the internet, not a big fan of this genre or, or like to make fun of this genre. And, and I got to tell you, I know that some of the ideas, some of the stories, some of the characterizations are either really, really out there or really, really flat. But they make me smile from ear to ear, which you might not be able to see because I'm always wearing a mask when I watch these things. Okay, not really. But <laughs> <laughs> I just bought they make Luchador mask, so I get that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got three or four back in the bedroom. Well, that sounded weird. Why I keep them in the bedroom anyway? Um, <laughs> that's where the closet I, 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 is. We're not gonna go there. This is a family show, man. That's <laughs> where the closet is, man. I'm just saying, you know. Anyway, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I just I love this stuff and. You know, I'll watch uh, modern luchador um, promotions. I'm a big fan of Lucha Underground. And even though I can't understand a word they're saying, there's a uh, Spanish language channel that I can get that shows uh, weekly matches. CMLL, I think, is the promotion. Uh, so I'll watch that. Uh, it's just, it's amazing to me. I'm a pro wrestling fan. Uh, Rank and I are actually recording this on Sunday of WrestleMania. Uh, and I don't know if you saw this or you're aware of this, Frank, but El Santo was inducted into the Hall of Fame in the Legends uh, category this weekend. Yes, I read it, and I'm really grateful that they did that. Uh, Not a fan of WWE, but I'm not going to trash them either because they did something very important to people who love lucha movies and luchadors and wrestling because Mm -hmm. Santo was one of the biggest names in the business, and he – just like uh, Mil Mascaras, who is in there, deserve to be. If you're going to have a, a Hall of Fame, you have to put the people who belong in there, the greats. And there's a few more, I think, that belong in there of that category. But the fact that they've added Santo is a great step towards uh, affirming that is more than just a ego trip for the WWE. So they're doing some right. good there. Santo made you know, over 50 movies and wrestled for many years and his family's in the business. And he's really one of the mainstays, one of the three pillars, they call it. Though I think there's a couple of extras that should be added. Yeah. As I said, in his all too brief moment, uh, momentary mention uh, in the, the package where they showed that he's being inducted film, television, cartoons, comic books. He was a cultural, a folk icon, 
and uh, to have him in there. And then, of course, a few years ago, we had Mil Moskras inducted into the Hall of Fame as well. I love that you are starting to see – I feel like it doesn't happen a lot, but every once in a while, something in pop culture will reference or, or pay respect to uh, the Luchadors. I haven't seen it yet, but I understand that El Santo actually has a teeny tiny cameo in the latest Disney film in Coco. Yes, he does. Actually, a friend sent that to me. A friend I mean, this sent is amazing. a clip of that to see, and I actually really I, I was like, oh, that's just awesome. The Disney is even even acknowledging the power of the luchador. Uh, it's good stuff, man. I, I love it. And I think this one is one of the first ones I saw when I first started getting into these films, The Champions of Justice from 1971. I think the very first one I saw was one of the uh, mummies. Films, probably the mummies of Guanajuato, uh, the, the one with Blue Demon and Mil Mascaras, basically carrying the entire movie until Santo shows up at the end to save the day. The ultimate, um, the ultimate, what really, dude? Moment, of yeah, all time. yeah. I was like, really, really, you're just gonna come in and steal the last minute of it after we did all the work, man? Really, dude? Yeah. So that that was the first one I think I saw, but I saw Champions of Justice pretty early because when I read about it, I thought this is one I have got to see because I don't believe it, but I've seen it. I've watched it repeatedly. I still kind of don't believe it, but it is a special movie. <laughs> it really is. I mean, yeah, I, I, I get that. You know, let's, let's just put something aside right now. None of these movies were budgeted like a Hollywood movie. Not in, not even in the same universe. This is closer to the Italian sword and sandals movie where they're making do with what they did. But in this one, they seem to have had a little bit better budget and they seem to have had a little better idea of not having the same two or three areas that they're filming their sequences in. Um, it was really it was a little better made. And don't get me wrong, it's still a low budget film, but it is it used low budget in such a good way. I mean, it, it really was an impressive add to it. And I know people like to call this one the Mexican Justice League, but I've always been more of a Marvel kid, so I've always called it the, the Mexican Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this movie really has a lot to offer. And happily, right after you had asked me in the last time we spoke uh, on Skype, to do this as the opening to Lucha de Mayo, I found it, that subtitled copy of it. Because I've been watching this movie most of my life without, with, uh, in Spanish, which I don't speak. So, you know, I do the best I can with what I have. And it didn't really, it never really matters. But now I got to get little details of the movie because of that. So, really worked out well. There, there are copies, there are ways to see this movie now with the subtitles although this is something that we've talked about frank we we can understand these movies because we understand the international language of wrestling and monsters so yeah and monsters so there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, this one is a pretty impressive entry to the lucha cinema the director federico curiel is considered one of the legends of uh mexican movie you know one of the most prolific film directors there ever was. And he did Santo movies. He did horror movies. He did a very famous horror series called Nostradamus the Vampire. Uh, he directed those uh, with Herman Robles that it's said to have influenced some horror, hammer horror and other movies there. But most importantly to those of us who are Lucha fans, 
he's the director of the Mummies of Guadalajara. Mm-hmm. And as well as the others of these, so, so he he really know knew the genre and he knew how to get the best out of the luchadors and the bad guys in this film. And plus, it was just plain pure fun. You're just having a blast watching this, even during the moments where you're like rolling your eyes a little. So you know, I really love this one. It's one of my favorites. I would say it's. I would also agree with you uh, regarding the Justice League versus the Avengers analogy. I'm going to say it's the Avengers of Luchador movies as well, and, and I don't know if that's because that's the more successful uh, <laughs> franchise when it comes to superhero teams on the big screen these days. But it really does feel like that. I mean, the movie opens with all of our heroes riding motorcycles, going down, a, a, I guess, a busy street or a highway at night in Mexico, just cruising, man. It's like they're out on patrol. And it's great. And you can see that the luchadors themselves are having a blast. Oh, yeah. It really comes through in a lot of sequences, but that one especially. And this is the movie, I think, where the Blue Demon really stepped up the most. I mean, I've seen a a whole bunch. He's done. He did 27 movies. I've seen a lot of them, most of them in Spanish. And I've always been impressed by the Blue Demon. I actually like the Blue Demon a little more than Santo because first thing, the man had one of the best voices ever. He just had this really strong, deep, great pronunciation of words. Uh, Just, you know, he really did it well. He had a great build and he moved very well. He struck me very much as the leader when when he was in his sequences. So it was almost like the Mexican Batman leading the team. I thought they were the Avengers. Come well, on. I'm going to jump back and forth wherever I can. Okay. I, okay. I don't have, I don't care. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, he really, um, the thing was, um, his individual movies where it was just him were usually copies of previously made Santo movies. Yeah. And that was intentional because they knew it worked. So they might as well do it. Sure. It's the same producer. And they brought the blue demon out they needed another character as backup because Santo was about to ask for a big giant pay raise and they didn't want to give it to him. <laughs> um, well, uh, Santo and the Blue Demon then worked in a lot of movies together. And the thing that was very well known is that they were not buddies. They were not friends. No, no, they were rivals. I mean, a lot of the time they, they just, big, you know, big rivals because Blue Demon in 1953 was one of the first people to ever beat Santo. And he never really got over that, I think. <laughs> and the Blue Demon started as a bad guy, a Rudo. He was not a Technico, a good guy. A, he was a Rudo. And his partner is in this movie. Which one was his partner? The Black Shadow. Okay, okay. He was his partner. From They were tag team champions. He was, and, and he plays the bad guy in this movie. And... He lost his mask in one of the mask versus mask contests. And that is when the blue demon went to become a good guy. The, 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 the black, actually the black shadow. Um, he, he stayed as a wrestler for many, many years. He's considered a very good wrestler. And this is one of the rare times he put the mask back on specifically because it was the movie and he was going to lose a lot. <laughs> so okay, you know, okay, they, but they really don't. You know, they respect that when you lose it, you lose it. 
So he was the Blue Demon's actual partner, which comes through at the end of the movie because they have a fight against each other. And it really flows very well because these are two guys who really they knew how to work together. They fought together. Yeah. And so they, it worked really well, the Black Shadow and uh, and the Blue Demon. So it really was cool stuff. I want to make this clear in case people aren't really into this genre or, or have a passing knowledge of the genre. When you have a movie like this and you've got the Blue Demon, Mil Gras, Santo, whoever, they're not playing other characters. They are basically playing versions of themselves. This is a world, the world of these Lucha Libre films, these Luchador films, this is a world in which these wrestlers are even bigger celebrities than they may have been in real life. They are just who they are and they are the good guys and they fight crime and sometimes they team up with the local authorities sometimes they deal with rampaging mummies sometimes they i don't know they save the world basically they save mexico at the very least and then they save the world if they if they need to it's pretty amazing i don't feel like you see this with any other really subgenre of or genre period sure the wwe produces movies now but when they put somebody like the miz in one of their movies he's not playing the miz he's playing some other character uh, I, I saw this example brought up on youtube when i was trying to do some research on this movie when the rock appeared in the scorpion king he wasn't playing the rock he was playing the scorpion king when you see a movie like this blue demon is playing blue demon mil Moscris is playing mil Moscris, and it's an interesting kind of touch of reality that works itself into this subgenre that, let's be honest, can be pretty absurd. And I dig that, man. I, I love the idea that these wrestlers, these luchadors, are pulp heroes. Frank already called them, or called the Blue Demon, the Batman of the, of the group. And, and really, it feels that way. And I think you and I have talked about Mimaskris being like the man of, uh, to be like the Doc Steel type. Uh, Doc Steel. That's not right. Doc Savage. Wow. It's early, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, at least for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about him being the Doc Savage type. It's just a fascinating uh, little subgenre, this little mix. And not all the movies are about monsters. Not all the movies are about crazy mad scientists. Uh, sometimes they're just spy movies. And, and that's okay because they're awesome. Yeah, it, it really, it really fits. And as uh, Santo and the Blue Demon got a little older, they had to cut down on the number of action scenes that they could do because they did most of their own stunts, if not all. So they would just show them in normal life. And normal life was them dressed in a suit or dressed in day, regular day clothing with the mask. And when they would go to a, uh, let's say, to a restaurant and they'd be out there eating or eating with each other, or girlfriends or whatever, nobody stared at them like, what the hell are these people doing? There was, there was this total acceptance that these men are special and they're normal. You know, and that's something that never really translated to the superhero genre so much, where, you know, one of my favorite uh, superheroes of all time is Daredevil. And he has a secret identity, a very distinct secret <laughs> identity. Yeah. Whereas the blue demon is the blue demon always. And that's kind of cool, too. That adds to it. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no reason to have a secret identity. And, and it's just who they are. It's just what they do. And I got to tell you, there is nothing more 70s cool 
than seeing a bunch of luchadors dressed up in their finest, going out to dinner, wearing their masks, wearing their suits. I mean, that's that right there is the pinnacle of awesome for me. <laughs> I agree with you. I'm, I'm with you on it because it adds to the you know the absurdity and the enjoyment of that world. Mm-hmm. The, the luchador world where their main job they're known for is fighting in these wrestling matches, which there's always at least one or two in every movie. And then they're going out to fight a ancient, ancient Aztec mummy or German Nazi spies. They're trying to take over Mexico. It, it, it's all acceptable. Yeah. And, and that is perfection. Th- yeah. Today. It's pretty special. And, this movie doesn't just give us Blue Demon. It doesn't just give us Milmoscris. It gives us a whole crew. Like we've been saying, it's the Avengers of Luchadors. Santos not in it. And I don't know if there was a pay thing, if he was recovering from an injury, if he was busy in the ring doing something else. Because keep in mind, a lot of these guys, they were maintaining their wrestling career as well while making these movies. So you don't have Santo, but you've got Blue Demon, you've got Milmoscris, you've got, well, Black Shadow, he's not one of the group. Uh, he's We've got... Um, one of my absolute favorites. And I don't know very much about this dude, but I love the way he looks. There's just something incredibly striking. I'm going to mispronounce it. And I think I've mentioned this before on the show, probably even with Frank. Teniabless? Teniabless? Teniabless. Your guess is as good as mine. Let's, you know, let's do our standard as we do every time we speak about luchador movies. If we mispronounce a name, it's honest and not intentional. Not at all. Not at all. Neither, neither of us speaks Spanish and we're doing our it best. It translates to the word <laughs> darkness. And he says, big dude, tall, with this really cool yellow gold mask with this big black visor shape in it. There's just something about that guy, especially when he's wearing the cape, when he's kind of pacing back and forth in front of the building, protecting the girls. I love that image. I I actually have one Luchador magazine that I bought years ago off eBay because he was on the cover. I can't read a thing in it. I don't know what it says, but it's got some great pictures, including a picture of him for whatever reason walking around this model cityscape like he's some sort of kaiju luchador i I don't know what the context of it is but it's just so cool (laughs) yeah he is an amazing character he was originally a bodybuilder he's about six foot three and with a bodybuilder physique who was asked to become a wrestler because and it was a way to make money he just did it he said yeah let's do that and he uh, they created this character, uh, the darkness. We're just, I'm just going to use the, um, the English translation with the sub name of El Gigante, which is the giant. And that might play into your luchador movie, you know, the wise giant, as he was called also. He, uh, did a bunch of movies, mostly in the co-starring role. He never had his own, but he did have his own comic book. He was the second guy to have, I mean, That's- El Santo had a comic and then this guy had a comic. And so did the blue. Right, Demon. right. Eventually they had, to, but this is the second guy to have a comic outside of this group, and that's that's awesome. He wrestled until uh, until his seventies. Um, his son, I believe, is a wrestler using the the character as with the junior title after it. And he was never as good a wrestler. He did learn to become a pretty decent wrestler, but it was it was the visual, the behavior, and the style that made the character work. And he's a very cool character. Very. Right out of the Marvel comics, in my opinion. And this is his first film. Yes, it is. And he did a bunch of other ones, and he was in uh, – did a good job in them. And he learned how to become a good wrestler from what I read from people who were more expert in that field. Over the years, he actually took the time to learn to become 
a more of uh, what he needed to be in the mm-hmm. ring. So, he, and it worked because he worked until 2011, which is a pretty long time if you think about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a heck of a career, considering yes. what these people do for a living. And when you watch these movies, there are no stunt people. All of the fight scenes, they're all performed by the wrestlers. Although in this movie, they do swap out one of the villains for a, a dummy every once in a while. And we'll talk about that. Because uh, yes. <laughs> it's yes. absurd, but wonderful at the same time. Wonderful. I mean, they're, they're doing their own stunts. And it's not just in the ring. And, and okay, I know I keep talking about wrestling. And, and I hope I'm not turning people off. I'm a fan of pro wrestling. I watch it. I enjoy it quite a bit. I know. It's choreographed, it's scripted, whatever. But it's still a very physical thing. And it's, it's, it's the body takes some bumps when you're in the ring. In this movie, they're wrestling outside. They're on the hard ground. That's insane. I mean, there, there's no give. Now, granted, the ring doesn't have a lot of give either. But the ground, there's nothing there, really? man. There's not a mat suspended by... No, it's, it's, hard. it's hard ground, man. And this is... You know, they're taking bumps, and it's, I know some of it's movie magic, but still, come on. This is hard work. Yeah, well, professional wrestler's life is a pretty rough one. I mean, we see the positive side of it, but I encourage people to watch the documentary done about uh, the, one of the great wrestlers of all time, Bret Hart. Mm-hmm. And it showed a year in his, in his life, and it even showed when the great Montreal Screwjob actually, as it happened, and you can see the backstage stuff there, too. You get an idea of how much punishment these guys' bodies take from the actions because, you know, the the whipping each other and all of that, it, it's, it's a very physical – I know it's choreographed, but it's also very physical. And luchador style of wrestling is much more dangerous than just standing and trading punches in the, in the slapping mm-hmm. sense that – Many wrestlers do. These guys will do some of the most daring, crazy stunts. I mean, Lucha Underground does it all the time, and I can never get enough of it, especially when you watch guys like um, Drago and Aerostar, some of the modern guys who will do these amazing diving stunts out of the ring and into the concrete areas. And even if you do it right, you're going to damage yourself. Mm -hmm. And many professional wrestlers in real life end up getting addicted to drugs with pain pills or suffering severe damage to their body. Uh, It's a lot more punishing than people realize. Uh, Some of them end up in wheelchairs because of the dangers. Mm -hmm. Um, And these guys that did it in these movies, they're not even doing it under controlled situations where there's a ring. And other people that might know it, sometimes they're working with guys who've never done wrestling. And that's the most dangerous of them all. I mean, there's a very famous story, uh, the movie The Frisco Kid with Gene Wilder. (laughs) Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I worried at the beginning of this, and I'm like, I'm going to talk about riding with Frank for a second. It has nothing to do with Luchador. The Frisco Kid? The Frisco Kid, but it gets... Okay, okay, okay. It's a fast. (laughs) Uh, He was doing a fight scene where he's punching one of my favorite human beings in the world, William Smith, Big Bill Smith, who most people know from the um, Hell's Angels biker movies. Big, tall, muscular, brilliant man with a, usually had a mustache and had a great scary smile. 
He did Any Which Way You Can with uh, Clint Eastwood. It was one of his more famous movies. And he's a trained uh, screen fighter. By the way, he was in The Ghost of Frankenstein. Yes, he was. So there's a horror link right there. He was the little kid who kicks the little girl's ball onto the top of the building. Yep, he is. He played Conan's dad. He played Conan's dad and... He also was in Red Dawn, in which he delivered a speech where he demanded that he be allowed to do it in Russian because he's a fluent Russian speaker. So he's, he's, a, he's a renaissance man, writes poetry, and he's a great human being, from what I gather. He's doing this sequence with, with Gene Wilder, where Gene Wilder has to throw a punch, and he's hitting Bill Smith as strong as he can. And he's actually punching him. And Bill Smith is pulling his punches because if he hadn't, Gene Wilder would be a corpse. And (laughs) at one point, he keeps hitting Will Will Smith. And Bill Smith pulls him aside and says, you lay one more hand on me and I'm going to – and I'm not going to say the rest of it because this is a family show. But, you know, these guys – he's taken punishment from a guy who is a quarter of his size, doesn't have any real ability to fight, only because the guy doesn't know what he's doing. So the analogy I'm working here is sometimes Santo, the Blue Demon, Mil Mascaras, these guys are fighting regular human beings. And regular human beings accidentally damage you worse than the guys who really know what they're doing. So, yeah, I went to a really unique direction there, didn't I? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and, you know, we talk about – and I think James Cornette, the – the legendary promoter and manager calls it the flippy dippy stuff that these guys do. It's not all flippy dippy. If you go watch a regular luchador match, okay, take it away from the films. You go watch like CMLL or AAA or something. The matches go on forever. A lot of times it's two out of three falls. A normal or not normal, but a traditional WWE match, what, five, seven minutes? Maybe yep. 10, unless it's like something special. These guys will wrestle for, man, just a long period of time. So it's, it's a lot of work, man. It's, it's not just jumping off turnbuckles and, and that sort of thing, although that's awesome when they do it. It's, yeah. you know, it's a it's lot of aerobic so- and just, just wear and tear on the body. And that they were able to make these movies and still to have the charisma that I feel like they have. And, and I know maybe I'm biased because I like wrestling, but there's still something about it. They are charismatic. Of course they're the heroes. Of course they're folk legends in their home country, if not around the world. They're charismatic. I, I, yeah. Blue Demon for president. Come on. Absolutely. <laughs> and this movie has our mutual favorite, Mil Mascaras. His movies were always a little more cut rate than the Blue Demon and Santo movies, but he really shines in this movie and doesn't try to outshine the Blue Demon. He stands on his own right as the second in command of this little group, and they work really well together. I mean, they really – there's a lot of chemistry between the two of them when they're doing their scenes together, and there's one tiny moment where he changes masks (laughs) right in front of the screen. Where it's like such a blink, it's like, oh my god, we could have seen, we almost saw his face. Yeah, so that's the thing about these luchadors. You never saw their face. That that was the thing. There, we talked earlier about how they don't have a secret identity, and I guess technically maybe you could say they do, but they never use it. It's always it's just always Blue Demon. It's always Santo. You never saw their face toward the end of his career, his life. I think we got to see Santos' face once, kind of sort of by accident on television. But other than that, it's always been 
uh, their mask is their identity. Most of these guys were buried in their masks. Yeah, yeah. And there's that one shot in this film. This is my favorite shot of Mel Mascaris in any of these movies. Yeah, it's great that he does stuff in the ring. He does stuff outside of the ring. Uh, even the more recent stuff that he's been involved with, like Mel Mascaris versus the Aztec Mummy, which was just a trip. I mean, they're great. I love what he does physically as a wrestler, as a luchador. But when he does the mask quick change on camera, Yes. That to me is just, that's it right there. No mask is gimmick. He's the man of a thousand masks and he's always changing his masks. And in a movie like no mask versus the Aztec mummy, every scene he's in a different mask and nobody thinks anything of it. It's just his thing. And he does this that's in this movie too. He's always changing up the mask and to have that one swap. So cool. He does it even casually. Like, they're going from inside a building and you can actually, if you watch it, as he's stepping through the building doorway, he's pulling off his mask for another one underneath. So that was always his gimmick and he took it very seriously because he has probably more than a thousand real masks. And he used to change, he used to always start every wrestling match by pulling one mask off and another mask underneath. And they're always very spectacular looking, looking pieces. I've always liked that. Uh, another guy in their group there was um, the killer doctor, the Mauricio um, <laughs> assassin. And he was a – the interesting thing is he's not the real one. Um, okay. They, we'll just call him the killer doctor so my bad Spanish doesn't offend anybody. Uh, the original killer doctor was one of the great luchadors of all time. But he died in 1960, I believe, of cancer when he was fairly young. He was considered like one of the great heavyweight champion wrestlers of all time. Oh. This man, also known as a killer doctor, was known mostly to Americans um, in the World Champion Wrestling Syndicate in Texas as known as Gran Marcus, G-R-A-N-M-A-R-K-U-S, Gran Marcus. And I actually read about him as a kid, never having seen him because I lived in New Jersey, in like Inside Wrestling. And he was a champion wrestler in his own right. But I think they decided to, like, tie it to the past and just call him the medical assassin, the killer doctor, to keep that going. And he would come hmm. in with a doctor's bag and white scrubs, as he saw in the wrestling scene. It's a cool little outfit, actually, with the wrestling, with the doctor's surgeon gown or whatever he's wearing. It's a neat, striking visual. It is. And there was another one, a third killer doctor called Dr. Wagner, who also wore a white mask. There was a period where there were like three of them that had white masks and they worked as a team. There was this one, Gran Marcus, the killer doctor. There was Dr. Wagner and there was another one called um, – I'm just going to call him the White Angel, Blanco Angelica I think is how they pronounced it. Uh, who They all worked together as the, these white mask team um, and they were very famous wrestlers. Uh, Dr. Wagner's son – became a champion wrestler himself, Dr. Wagner Jr., who worked in Lucha Underground. And I recently read that five, six months ago, he actually lost his mask in a wrestling contest against um, a character called the Psycho Clown. Yeah, and that's that's a big deal. When a luchador loses his mask in the ring, and it's usually like a mask versus mask, or similar to like the hair versus hair matches you'd see up here every once in a while, like in the WWE or whatever. If you lose, you lose your mask, and that changes 
everything for your career, for the most part, unless your name's Ray Mysterio Jr. Uh, that changes everything in your career because suddenly you can't wear that mask anymore. People know what you look like. Now, in the case of Dr. Wagner Jr., I believe he continued to compete maskless. And it just kind of changed his character a little bit. Yeah, uh, he has. But, competed. He's still competing, but I don't know what he's going to do if he comes back to Lucha Underground because he's known only under the mask. And I don't know what they're planning there. And, and I mentioned Rey Mysterio because he famously did lose his mask in WCW at one point. And, and I do know that it, he <laughs> he was going to go wrestle down in Mexico with the mask. And at the time, the Mexican authorities, the people who kind of oversee and, and the commission of wrestling and all that, it's like, no, you can't put the mask on. We saw everybody, everybody saw you get unmasked in WCW. You can't wear your mask down here. You're unmasked now. So they take it pretty seriously. So. Now, yeah, obviously, fact, that's changed over the years, but they well, no, it really hasn't because they still protect the identities of the people under the mask. Well, what I mean is that Ray Mysterio is wearing a mask again. Yeah, I don't know how that works. I yeah, honestly, I, I, I find this very confusing, and I'm hoping one of my friends. I've been making more friends who uh, write about it, and some people who actually make the masks and over that over the last couple of years. I'm hoping one of them will be able to explain to me about uh, the Rey Mysterio and possibly Dr. Wagner. I don't know what they're planning there. Now, the last member of the group Mm -hmm. was – I'm going to again try to pronounce it uh, here – La Sombra Vengadaro. (laughs) So you see how well (laughs) I did. (laughs) The Avenging Shadow. We're just going to call him that. But I have to try at least to be fair. The Avenging Shadow was created for the movies. Yeah. Some of these characters, if you go look them up on various databases online, you will see, even though I went on and on and on about how they always wear the mask, you will see some of them unmasked. And a lot of times that's because they're actors first. Right. And especially in this case. Uh, right. He made four movies under the character's name um, and he was replaced. He was only in this version of The Champions of Justice. His real name was Fernando Ose. He did a lot of movies as an actor. He's best known in the acting community as Baron Bracola in the very famous Baron Bracola film starring Santo. Really good vampire movie that I've only seen in very poor prints. But it's it, he was a wrestler, too. He was best known, though, also he wrote 32 movies. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. He was a very prolific writer of luchador movies that we have seen. He wrote Santo versus the Vampire Women, known to the American public as Samson versus the Vampire Women. That was also on Mystery Science Theater 3000. He was one of the three vampires. Okay. And actually, I'm going to be talking about that movie later this month with Jason Giaconetti, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, and it'll be the Samson version because that's what he has access to. And I think it'll be interesting to to see the Americanized version of a Luchador movie and, and talk about it during Lucha de Mayo here on the show. So that'll be fun. Yeah. And he's a, a – he, Fernando Ose was um, – he was a director. He was an actor. He was a producer. And most importantly, he wrote most of these movies. So uh, he always played these parts. And in the beginning of the movie, they have their the standard wrestling match. They kept him and Darkness, you know, watching it from the distance while the three real professional wrestlers were the ones, the, the three best trained, were the ones to do the scenes in the ring. 
So there was a kind of acknowledgement of who are the real wrestlers and who are the one guy who's trying to be a wrestler. That's that's Tiana Blas, the, the darkness and this Avenging Shadow are uh, going to watch it and let the real guys do the work there, I think. Yeah. Um, Fernando Ose, though, is a really, uh, really amazing human being when you read about his writing career and how he transferred so much of what he knew to the to the cinema and was able to play the parts in each of the movie, you know, little parts here and there. So I've always had I always really liked the guy. And then we come to the villain uh, played by an actor named David Silva, who was in the Hurricane uh, Ramirez movies. I love his name. He's Dr. Zarkov. <laughs> Dr. Zarkov, also known as the Black Hand. And yes, for the once, he has a black hand, a real character that's called the Black Hand who has a black hand. Never explained <laughs> why, but it was there. You know, there's a lot about this movie that isn't explained, but it doesn't matter. I, I love that while I believe this is the first time we've seen this particular team up, this grouping, it exists in a world in which this team has been around and, and and fought villains and even fought the black hand before there's not an origin story here, which so many superhero or hero movies kind of get bogged down in sometimes they just happen to be out on patrol and they have a wrestling match and the black hands up to no good. And he wants revenge on them for something they did that we never really found out about. Uh, it was in a previous story that they just didn't make a movie about. Apparently I love that. I mean, it, it all just kind of, yeah, he's the black hand. Why is he the black hand? Well, maybe if we had an origin story, we would have known. But it doesn't matter. We don't need it. This is a world in which the champions of justice exist, and so do their villains. And that's it. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. You don't need the long, detailed explanation. You don't need the info dump. You got right in there. And the fact that they use Dr. Zarkov, which is from Flash Gordon, which is my favorite sci-fi of all time, and it will never be talked as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> that just doubled my enjoyment. It's like, oh, God, Dr. Zarkov. That's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. And one other famous uh, person was in this movie, uh, semi-famous at least, was Elsa uh, Cardenas, who played in most of the movies I've seen her in, she plays a character named Elsa. And there's a lot of use of her. She's a very beautiful woman, uh, making certain they got as many shots of her in bikinis as possible. Um, and yeah. <laughs> it, it was a little, it was, there were, especially towards the end of the movie. I don't want to spoil it, but there were towards the end of the movie. It's like, it was like, okay, we're, we're really kind of getting a little exploitive here, but we're going to just run with it for the first part of the movie. Her character is almost unexplained. And then you figure things out as you go, and uh, I'm not going to say any more because I might boil it for anybody who wants to see it. But um, she's best known for being in The Wild Bunch, uh, the very famous Peckinpah movie. Mm -hmm. So, And she did a lot of movies, and she's still apparently per currently working. So, you know, good for her. Uh, yeah. I, I, You know, she does a decent job with what they gave her, but there's a lot of um, convenient shots of bikinis for her. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, it, yeah. and it's again, it's part of the world, though. I mean, to have these beautiful women around the luchadors, and they just have a normal relationship. That's all it is, you know? It's great. In fact, this movie, there's a beauty pageant uh, that, that's part of the story. So, of course, you're going to have these women running around in, in swimsuits. And 
That's cool and all. And I don't know what this says about me. Yes, I appreciate the female form. That's great. But if we're going to do something with water, I don't want a swimsuit. I want to see the scene where the luchadors are wrestling underwater. That's what I want. <laughs> and happily, you got it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> happily. You know, I, I always thought the same way. It's like it, the best example I can give is another slightly different direction is the Marx Brothers. Many of the early Marx what? Brothers had. Frank, you're ahead. killing me here, man. I go everywhere. But the early Marx Brothers movies had a lot of sequences because they were made for plays of musicals. And I started watching these movies with my late dad, and we would be like, oh, just get through the music. I want to hear Groucho and Harpo and Checo. I don't want to see that, you know, a bunch of uh, people singing these sequences. And I got that way as life goes on with uh, with the females in movies like this where they're, you know, okay, they're walking across the screen over and over again in bikinis. It's like, uh, okay, let's just let's just get through this. Come on. I want to see fighting. I want to see vampires. <laughs> so then we come to the assistance of the black hand. Okay. And this is where it gets totally luchador demented. It does. I mean, it's representative somewhat of the luchador culture. When we say luchador, when I say lucha libre, obviously I think the first thing people think of are, are the masked you know, wrestlers, the luchadors, and, and that's part of it. Not all luchadors wear masks in, in, in the business, okay? And there are certain subsets of luchadors, including the minis. And the minis, I don't know what the, the proper way of referring to people uh, is in, in this case. Um, I've seen translations of this movie where they call them dwarves. I've seen them recur referred to as midgets. I don't know what the proper term is these days, so please do not take offense and, and maybe even offer me some correction if I get it wrong. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I try to use the term that I've seen a lot written lately okay. in the last few years of mini Estrella. Okay. Um, which, you know, it means uh, that they're small wrestlers, but it doesn't, it's not meant to be a pejorative right. against them. And there is a couple of moments where. These where one of them, the, there's only one who actually has any dialogue, refers to himself as a useless dwarf. And it's like, oh, cringe moment, man. It, it, yeah, um, it's part of the culture of these movies and it's not part of our culture anymore so much. And as such, you have to take this for, for the period that was in and sort of enjoy the ride because – Part of it, I, I don't mind giving this as a spoiler, is that the Black Hand gives these mini Estrella wrestlers the super strength, the strength of 10 men. So they get to spend most of their mov the movie beating the heck out of all the good guys. It's, it's awesome, and it, it gives us some pretty cool fight scenes. If you go look up this movie on YouTube, and, and I have, because I was hoping, hoping I could find a trailer. There's no trailer. But there are some clips on YouTube of just a fight scene with Mil Mascaris or Blue Demon fighting the minis. And, I mean, the minis, it's, it's a thing today. I mean, there are hundreds, I'm sure. Uh, many Australia's out there working in the biz right now. There, there was one on Lucha Underground. I don't know if he's going to be in the next season or not. But, I mean, it's it's a thing. It's part of the culture. And, and to have them represented here, even though they're all villains, is still pretty cool. And I do love that at one point... <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is what I said earlier about there being kind of a stunt dummy. Um, 
there's there's one shot and it happens so fast where they're out in the field they're out you know there's the ambush and you know they're beating up Melmascris and the others turn up or, or maybe it's blue demon i can't remember but they're they're beating them up they're fighting and at one point i think it might have been in Tianablis, picks one up and just tosses him and at first i'm thinking what wait wait a minute and then you realize it's just a guy or i'm sorry a set of clothes stuffed with who knows what it's a dummy and like one of them catches him and throws him again it's just come on. it's like so bizarre that would never fly in the wrestling ring but so what it, you know it's it's a movie magic right it happened one other time in this uh, final towards scene the end. <laughs> where they pick up this one mini Estrella and then it turns into a dummy. And I'm not going to – we're not going to say what happens, but it's like holy lord kind of moment when you <laughs> see it happen. And it, it was it was so demented. And because these mini Estrella have super strength, there's a couple of moments where they do a kind of movie magic to show it that is – pure 1970s low budget movie that is so funny and cool oh it's it's all <laughs> and every one of these mini Estrella in this movie are dressed in red outfits with big m's on them capes and these hooded masks attached to the capes that don't really fit them very well so you can see they're actually struggling at times just to see and it, it's it's such they don't one of the things I've always liked in these movies is they don't try to explain why things happen. This guy has three big wrestlers, the Death Brothers from the beginning of the movie. He has the Black Shadow as his main bad guy and this troop of the mini Estrellas. And he doesn't explain why he has like 15 people working for him. He just has them. And goes about his business to get revenge on the, the evil wrestlers who put him in jail. <laughs> you know, it's like... That's pretty much the story. That That's it, pretty much it. You don't need more. You don't need an origin. You don't need to know why he has a black hand and called the black hand. It's pure entertainment fun, just like many of these movies are. And if you go in there thinking too much, that's your fault. You, you got to go in there with just pure enjoyment in mind. And it's made Derek and I major fans of the genre. Yeah. I, I I think this would be a good gateway film for people who aren't like into it the way that, that Frank and I are or, or some other people who are into it even more. I, I think there's enough here to kind of show you, save some monster stuff, kind of show you what these movies are really about. It's about having a good time. It's a good versus evil story. Yeah, there's a lot of wrestling. Um, you know, we talked about the wrestling ring sequence at the very beginning where one of the mini Estrellas opened fires on the ring at yep. one point, which is like, what? Why haven't they done that on Lucha Underground yet? Um. <laughs> I know. I'm surprised they haven't because they've done almost everything else. I really – I got a lot of love for Lucha Underground and yeah. I've become a major Mil Muertes fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, Johnny Mundo's really impressed the heck out of me. Well, I, all the wrestlers that they have there under contract are impressive, impressive mm -hmm. actors mm -hmm. and, and luchadors. I mean, Johnny Mundo has physical talent like few others. I mean, Prince Puma just left and he was such a skilled wrestler and a good actor. And didn't uh, he just sign? Didn't he sign with WWE? 
I don't. I'm not surprised. I haven't heard. But I I'm think he signed. I think he's part of the I, next. He had, wait, he had to wait out a year yeah. for his, you know, the non-compete clause. And I think, you know, but they offered him a lot of money, but he decided, I guess, he wanted to be the big, uh, be the big guy. So there it is. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the champions of justice. I I hope people will go see it now. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, the reason I bring up the wrestling is I, I just want to comment on on the wrestling ring action. Uh, a lot of times in these movies, and in this case, it's it's not what happened because they actually shot it specific with a film. And I think this came up a couple of years back when I did Lucha de Mayo and I had somebody on the show. A lot of times these movies are the only times you're going to see some authentic in-ring action from these luchadors. They didn't always shoot it specifically for the film. Sometimes they would just take footage from another match. Yeah. And, and, you know, a real match for, for a promotion and insert it into the movie. And for whatever reason, that tape library doesn't exist, but we still have it in the film. And, and I don't know if any of the movies that I'm going to be covering later this month will have that as well, but we'll have like authentic matches or if it was all shot for the, the film. But I think it's interesting to kind of see that mix again. Again, it's movie magic. It's a way yep. of making movies. There, there's something about these films. And, and the reason I wanted to bring this up is just, there's a way of making these movies that I think is truly unique and special. And I agree with you. I really do. I think that these have be they've really become one of my main genres these days uh, in the last few years more so. I, what, one of the things that one of my friends said, you should never concentrate too much on one area. It's one of like five or six areas that I'm always known for concentrating on it, you know, and I absolutely love the, the concepts that they come up with, no matter whether they're, uh, they're fighting monsters or spies or, uh, or, you know, sci-fi stuff, though I tend to prefer the monsters, obviously. Well, sure. Yeah, I think we all. <laughs> I think we both do. I love the monster stuff, and there will be some monster content later this month. I promise you that. Just just to kind of give you a sneak peek, like I said, we're going to be doing the Samson movie. Uh, I'm also going to be talking uh, with somebody about a movie in which Santo time travels and Dracula is involved. So that's going to be a very good one. That one's coming up. I love that one. And uh, we're also going to be doing one where we've just got a whole mess of monsters showing up. So it, it's, it's going to oh, be a treat. Oh, well, I know that one. Yeah, it's going <laughs> to be a treat. I, I love the monster stuff. I love this genre. And I love chatting with you, Frank. And you've held me in suspense for way too long. <laughs> what are these other two writing projects, man? Well, I have coming out in July my first hardcover novella. Wow. Through, uh, and it'll also be in softcover as well through some of my best friends in the world of my true tribe, uh, the guys from the Meteor House uh, publishing company, uh, Wynn Scott Eckert, Paul Spiteri, and uh, Mike. <laughs> you know, these guys are some of my best buddies in the world, and I've known them for a, so many years. We knew each other through email, and it'll be it's going to be announced very soon and the cover is being done by a friend of mine who is just such a wonderful artist i'm really looking forward to it it's got a lot of 70s action and it's one of my favorite projects of all time and the last one is one you and i have spoken about and i'm getting some really good buzz just from the cover is my second vampire hunters uh, napoleon's vampire hunters the devil plague of Naples. Oh, wow. Okay. It comes out in June. Wow. Fantastic. Well, listeners, 
pay attention to Frank on Amazon, I think, is where you're going to find most of his stuff. We need to get you a website or a Facebook page, man. You know, I've thought about it, but I've got the Amazon page, and, you know, we'll see about it. I don't know if I'll have a, a, a Facebook page or a um, website because I don't have time. I'm spending all the time writing. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Well, I'll make sure there's a link to Frank's Amazon page, nonetheless, over on the website at monsterkidradio.net. And I'll also make sure there are places where you can click on from monsterkidradio.net to take you straight to his books, buy the books, and I get like – five cents as an affiliate, something like that. I don't know. Maybe it's seven. I don't know what the deal is, but it might be enough to help keep the podcast going. I'm just saying. Please keep it going, man. <laughs> Buy my books and click on Monster Kid Radio because that's my favorite podcast out oh, there. Oh, man. You flatter me, sir. Well, you deserve it. Well, thank you so much for being part of the show, and uh, we'll have you on again. Maybe we won't wait three months to chat next time. How about that? I would really like that. I'd love to be here as often as I can. Of course, you can look up Frank on Amazon, Frank Schildener, and his last name is spelled S-C-H-I-L-D-I-N-E-R. However, I'm also going to make sure there's a link to his Amazon page in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, and I'll make sure there's buttons in the show notes as well that you can click on that'll take you to Amazon that'll let you buy his books through my affiliate link, which means I get like five cents, like I said, five, ten cents, I don't know, but eventually I'll have enough to buy a cup of Monster Coffee through these Amazon links. So if you are interested in checking out what he's doing, and supporting the show, that's how you do it. Frank is a great guy. I love chatting with him, and I could have chatted with him for hours on end, but I wouldn't want to put that on the show because ultimately it would end up us talking about Lucha Underground and wrestling and stuff that really isn't relevant to the, you know what? It's all relevant. I had so much fun with Frank. Come back to the show anytime, bro. He invokes the unspeakable. She invites it. The Dunwich Horror, based on H.P. Lovecraft's terrifying tale of those who explore the supernatural. Sandra D, Dean Stockwell, Ed Begley, Sam Jaffe, in The Dunwich Horror. The Willamette Radio Workshop. The award-winning Willamette Radio Workshop returns for the 19th Annual UFO Festival in McMinnville, Oregon. Two live radio shows at the Hotel Oregon in Maddie's room at 3 p.m. Saturday the 19th. Isaac Asimov's Pebble in the Sky and Craig Kenworthy's Herf, the Extra-Dimensional Assassin. Tales of future worlds with a modern edge. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll wonder when the mothership arrives. Free admission with food and beverages available. All ages are welcome. Live radio lives at McMiniman's 19th Annual UFO Festival. Don't miss it. I was a teenage werewolf. The most terrifying picture of our time. I was a teenage werewolf. Fantastic, bewildering. A motion picture to stand beside the greatest horror stories of all time. I was a teenage werewolf. Vault of Monster Collectibles. 
Haunted Hulk, MPC 1963. The 1960s was the golden age of classic monster toys, and some of the absolute coolest monster toys from that decade were made by Multiple Products Corporation. That's an inventive name, commonly known as MPC. Marks was king when it came to the inexpensive plastic figures and playsets, but MPC produced some real winners, especially their monster toys. MPC packaging graphics were spectacular and just screamed Monster Kid. One of their most sought-after monster toys was a haunted pirate ship called the Haunted Hulk. It consisted of a ghastly green hull and ship's wheel, spiderweb rigging, with a giant spider, three skulls standard, and a white sail with a vulture perched atop and two creepy stickers featuring a hanged ghoul's head and the ship's name. The stickers also sported spooky bats and a sizable blood splotch. Also included were two of NPC's weird monsters as partial crew. It's assumed they wanted the HH purchaser to also buy a set of the weird monsters to fully crew the Hulk. The box itself was a monster kid's dream, with macabre graphics and the blurb Horror of the Seven Seas. Judging by their scarcity today, haunted Hulks must not have been available for long. Maybe it was too costly for MPC to produce to sell for their $3 price point. Or maybe it was considered a little over the top by conservative parents. That ghoul's face and blood splotch might have seemed pretty gory and scary for little kids. Haunted Hulks are monster toy grails these days. They seldom ever come up for sale. Loose Haunted Hulks hit eBay, an average of one every year or two, and boxed examples almost never grace the marketplace with their presence. Loose Haunted Hulks have sold for around $700 to $800 in the past, but those usually have serious condition issues. A Loose HH in excellent condition should probably command a value in the area of $1,000. Boxed examples are very rare, and a sale of one in the recent past only realized a bit over $1,300. The auction was poorly presented, and the box was in pretty bad shape with the cello shredded, but the buyer still got an amazingly good deal. By comparing boxed Haunted Hulks to sales of similar NPC monster toys such as Horror House, Target sets, and the rare carded version of the Pop Top Horrors, a sealed Haunted Hulk MIP, which means mint in package, should sell for around $2,000 to $5,000 depending on the condition of the packaging. My own history with the Haunted Hulk started at age 5 in 1964 when my mom shelled out the staggering sum of $2.98 plus tax at a grocery store in Athens, Georgia, probably Kroger, and blessed me with a gift that lit up my monster kid eyes. I loved that toy for years, and it haunted many a bathtub voyage. But the kid mind wanders, and eventually my Haunted Hulk found its way into Toy Box Oblivion, along with my Marks and MPC Dinosaurs, Palmer Monsters, Hamilton's Invaders, and the rest of the trappings of Monster Kidum. When I started collecting monster stuff back in the 90s, I fondly remembered my dear old Haunted Hulk, and thankfully Mom kept what was left of my toys safe for me. The hole was really all that was left, 
but I did have my weird monsters along with pop-top horrors, palmers, and other monster figs of the day. I used the hull as a display base for my weird monsters for years, and all while I saved eBay searches for NPC Haunted Hulk until, finally, an auction listing appeared for the prices I needed to complete my HH, except for the wheel. I waited till sniping time and bid as much as I could afford for the sale, rigging, and standard, and to my amazement, I won the auction for minimum bid price of $150. The sale had lost most of its decals long ago, but everything was in great shape otherwise. I cleaned off the sale and set about a plan to get repro stickers. None were available presently, so I messaged an eBay seller doing good work with some Fireball XL5 stickers about maybe doing some Haunted Hulk stickers to hawk on the bay. He liked the idea and I sent him measurements of my original sale to aid him in his endeavor. He was appreciative and sent me two complimentary sets of HH stickers. I used the glossy set on my original sale and cut up the matte set to adorn my customs 60 style monster playset called the Haunted Graveyard Playset. The wheel was the last piece I needed to really complete my Haunted Hulk. Luckily, it wasn't unique to the Haunted Hulk like other pieces, and I easily scored an NPC pirate ship's wheel to use. The original HH wheel was green, and the pirate ship wheels were other colors, but aside from the color, it's an identical piece. If I ever run across a green HH wheel, I'll grab it, but something tells me I'll be dirt napping before that ever comes to pass. Picks this week include one of a boxed Haunted Hulk, as well as one of my loose Haunted Hulk. I've also included a pick of my custom Haunted Hulk that I created using an NPC pirate ship and some Monster Kid imagination. I call it the Ghost Galleon after one of my favorite Spanish horror films. And yeah, and as she cast guys, I know the Ghost Galleon gets defecated on by many a monster fan, but I still love it. Cheap special effects, wonky dialogue, and all. Next time, we discuss the most important monster magazine in history, Famous Monsters of Filmland, number one. man and beast as the mighty herd stampede in panic before the paralyzing fear of these monsters from the green hell the animals flee from green hell this i have seen and there is something perhaps even monsters but a thing of nature not of evil spirits this is the drone of death <laughs> The terrifying sound of the monstrous cosmic ray mutations unleashed upon the jungle from a rocket run wild. Can you guess how big the creature itself must be? Yeah. But we won't have to guess at it, Dan. We'll see for ourselves. Out of all mankind's millions, only a handful know the full horrifying danger. 
their strange safari to fight the giant insect enemy filmed with thrilling impact. See the battle with the warlike Anagas, driven wild by their superstitious fear of the monsters. See the subatomic barrage, powerless against these invincible enemies. Monsters from the Green Hell. Zombie! Halebi! Halebi! From award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan, White Zombie, a new novel based on the classic motion picture. What do you see? Neil asked. Madeline peered into the wine glass, pretending to be a fortune teller. And for a moment, her head reeled. She did see something within the depths of the cup. Terrible dark eyes staring up at her, boring into her mind. The eyes of that awful man they'd encountered in the road. You see? She felt dizzy now, really dizzy, and her throat was tight, as if cold hands were closing around her neck. What is it? Neil asked, concerned. The eyes burned into her. She couldn't breathe. I see, she managed to gasp. Death. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. There is no other way. Three hours of fantastic fear. When you scream to these horrifying terror twins, a projected man and island of terror. There you face the projected man, born a man, turned into a living laser beam by science's most gruesome experiment. Then, on the same theater program, you'll scream to the horror of Island of Terror. From another world comes the ghoulish, creeping death that lives by devouring living human bones. A new height in fright. See these horrifying terror twins. The projected man and island of terror. Both in blood panic color. So Brenda's back and we've got an email we're going to read. This actually came in uh, a couple weeks back. I believe it's about episode 366. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. So Brenda's back this week. Uh, before we read it, though, I did get some Facebook messages from people. That is one say in the background you may or may not hear. Okay. Can we tell them about how she plays fetch? Yes. That's what she, she's doing right now. Yeah. She just brought me her little toy. She wants. Here we go. Here she we has go, a sweet. toy with uh, curly ribbons on there. And she had so much energy as a kitten that... I tried to give her lots of positive reinforcement when she brought the toy to me so that I could throw it more for her so she would get more energy out. And now she plays fetch with it. But it's a somewhat noisy toy when she decides she wants to play. (laughs) It comes scraping and jingling across the floor. I love it. I love that she brings it over and like drops it in front of us. I absolutely love it. And her favorite is when you find a funky place to throw it. Like we have uh, a chair up against some curtains and she loves to try to jump up on that chair and catch it before it goes behind that chair. 
so she catches against the curtain. Sometimes she runs her head into the glass. Sometimes she goes diving head first behind <laughs> the couch to, or the chair to get it. You just hear She's a adorable. Thump. She's adorable. All right. So uh, what was I saying? Uh, we got some Facebook messages uh, just saying that we don't have to apologize for the weeks that you're not on the show for whatever mm. reason. So just thanks for everybody's understanding. I love having Brenda on the show, but like we keep saying, if health is an issue, it's not going to happen. And, uh, and it's can... actually kind of a challenge to do it today. So thank you, Hun, for... Yeah. yeah. It has been an issue lately, and I think it's because Portland is going through such extreme weather. Weather change. Ups and downs, cold, hot. And it has uh, progressed into my jaw joints. So there are days where it's just tough to eat and talk. Which is really good for your weight loss program. <laughs> Am I on a program? I don't know. I mean, I should lose weight. I wasn't thanks. saying that. Are you saying I'm fat? I wasn't saying that. I was saying you should read the email before oh. your jaw seizes up or something. I don't know. All right. Fun <laughs> show. <laughs> What is wrong with me as a husband? That was terrible. I'm sorry, No, honey. babe, that wasn't... We Ugh. were joking. We were joking. I was trying to come up with a joke about how you like it when I can't talk as much, but we're not really that couple. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> funny. We're not... That's not no. us. <laughs> okay, anyway. <laughs> okay. Fun show. Your talk with David Colton was very interesting and enjoyable. It's great to see fandom acknowledge their favorite creators with an award that's as cool as a Rondo. Congrats on your own Rondo. And the way MKR is going, he may have a Lucha Tag Team partner in the future at some point. <laughs> is Wednesday going to be their manager? <laughs> she would make a terrible manager. Did he actually write that? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, if they threw stuff for her, sure. <laughs> you did some good work with the new Vault of Monster collectible segment. The background music is very atmospheric, and Bren's beautiful voice enhances any presentation. The echo when she read the title is a nice touch. Dang, man, you and Brenda make my stuff sound good. <laughs> Stevie Wayne, indeed. Thanks, Brenda. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the listeners' emails brought up a few things I wanted to speak to. First, dude, watch The Blood on Satan's Claw and The Wicker Man. Those are two of the best. Also, I didn't have a problem with the monster effects in The Blood on Satan's Claw. If I like a film, I just apply suspension of disbelief liberally and drive on. <laughs> I know from a technical standpoint, the special effects of the turkey monster from the giant claw drop laughably below those of alien but come on man we love this stuff the blood on satan's claw is absolutely riveting and really brings the essence of horror archaic al Huiston of skywald monster mag fame called it horror mood anyway you gotta see these two films brother Snap, snap, get on it. I know, I know. There are so many movies out there that I want to watch. Just and they're on my list. I just, I worry now that The Wicker Man and Blood on Satan's Claw now too has gotten to be such, uh, has gotten so much hype and build up. There's no possible way that I'm going to walk away feeling satisfied because they've been hyped up so much. You know what I mean? Well, I wouldn't call this hyping up. It sounds like hyping down. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, well, I'm you're going to have to liberally apply your suspension of disbelief. And I just mean like with the Wicker Man in particular. I mean, it's it's a classic. It's got Christopher Lee. Uh, it had an amazing remake with Nicolas Cage. Okay, not really an amazing remake. I've only seen the scene where he punches a girl in the bear suit. But what about? Isn't there one where he's got like a? Oh, that's right. The beast. The, the beast. beast. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what I think. Suck it up, Buttercup. Watch the movies. Wow. Get on it. Is your jaw hurting yet? <laughs> getting a little Ooh, lippy over I'm there. I'm so scared it won't live up to my expectations. <laughs> it's not my expect. You know, okay. And I actually was going to bring this up um, on uh, an episode uh, with Craig Beam, who got sick, so he ended up having to cancel. We're going to reschedule. Craig Beam is a listener of the show. He's a Portlander area guy and a guy. He does the Twilight Zone podcast, but he also um, did some commentary work on the Outer Works Blue Outer Works Outer Limits Blu-ray. And Outer Limits came up in a feedback a little bit ago. You and I were talking, and I said, "Well, okay, I don't want to say anything about Outer Limits yet." And the thing is, I don't think I've watched an episode of The Outer Limits. Um, I haven't watched The Wicker Man. I haven't watched Blood on Satan Claw. There are a handful of these quote-unquote iconic things that I've not seen. And I don't know if that makes, I don't know, not make me like a lesser monster kid or anything like that. But just these are a few things that I've been thinking about maybe doing a YouTube video about. Mm. Some of these quote-unquote must-sees that I need to see. And then my Which initial is thoughts essentially on the definition of must-see. Your jaw hurting yet? <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean, though? I mean, there, there are certain things out there that I just have not seen. Yeah, but I think that's um, areas for growth, you know? You oh, can sure. bring I'm... new stuff to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I think I probably will do a YouTube video on them when I do watch them. I like a little short thing and then, then talk about them in depth on the oh, show. I was going to say, then you could do in detail. You could do like your immediate reaction right afterwards. That's what I was thinking because I want to do more of the YouTube channel. Okay. Also, wrestling, dude. I've been a pro wrestling fan since the 70s with Harry Thornton's wrestling show out of Chattanooga and Gordon Soley doing Georgia Championship Wrestling. I watch WWE like the rest of the world, but two of my favorites these days are Lucha Underground and New Japan Pro Wrestling. You too. Yeah. And actually, earlier in this episode... Uh, listeners will have heard Frank and I kind of geeking out about Lucha Underground stuff. Lucha Underground saturates the grappling and storylines with a good dose of monstering, as befits the product of such a rich heritage involving monster flicks featuring Santo, Blue Demon, Milmascaris, and the other monster-fighting luchadors. Wrestling and monsters have long traveled hand-in-hand. Just look at the long-term popularity of The Undertaker and Kane. Kane, who just recently won, I kid you not, the primary for his county seat's mayor position. Kane for mayor, man. (laughs) That's crazy. I know he's not the first wrestler to go into politics, but it's freaking Kane. Anyway. Here's some more monster flick recommendations for you. On the Mexican front, definitely check out The Black Pit of Dr. M, 1958. And yes, there is a classic Mexican horror flick called El Vampiro. Wow, I can speak Spanish. (laughs) So I haven't seen either one of those. But there's more. Oh, there's more? Okay. Or The Vampire, 1957. That's the El Vampiro. Right, right. (laughs) 
I'm sorry, I apparently gave too much of a pause. And it has a sequel, The Vampire's Coffin. Okay, now go. Okay, haven't seen them. Um, at one point, Rich Chamberlain and I were talking about, and Rich is going to come up here in a little bit, Rich Chamberlain and I were talking about covering The Vampire on the show, and that may still happen down the line. Um, yeah, we should make that happen. Okay. Casa Negra. Whoops. That's right. But I rolled the R, which is okay. just pretentious. <laughs> that, that may be how they pronounce it. I don't know. It's a DVD label. So. Casa Negra slash Panic House did some great DVDs of these a few years ago, which are sadly out of print now. Here's hoping for Blu-rays from somebody. Oh, and remember that horror mood I mentioned earlier? The Black Pit of Dr. M drips with it. It is so good. Check it out. On the HPL-influenced front, I recommend Messiah of Evil, 1973, by Willard Hoyuk. Hoyuk? Hoyuk. I just Hoyuk. did the best podcasting ever by shrugging my shoulders silently. Hoyuk. Uh, I don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> and Gloria Katz, The Dark Waters, 1994, by Mariano Biano. So Dark Waters, I believe I saw. When did it come out? 1994. I have to say also, I don't think the last name is Biano. I think I just went with the rhyme. <laughs> Mariano Bano, I think, is what it's supposed to be. If it's the movie that I think it is, and it's got nuns in it, I did see it at the Lovecraft Film Festival many moons ago. Well, there's a bit of a dis... Well, no, it doesn't say that. It says it has an effective sense of hopelessness that saturates these films that would tickle Lovecraft's fancy. Yeah, I, I I think this is the movie that was being shown there, and there was like a special edition of the movie being sold on DVD, like in a a crate with like a rock, and just if I remember right, it's been a, a long rock. time. <laughs> like it was a spe- here's a rock. <laughs> Buy my DVD. It comes with a rock. Yeah, no. Well, it was like a special rock. Right. Was I a- was gonna say I don't think they just like picked up a <laughs> rock on the way to the bus station. <laughs> It probably wasn't a rock, but I feel like there was something in the box. <laughs> you should probably Google that. No, I'm going to leave this in. It's a little bit disrespectful, right? Yeah. With a rock. It was, but... Yay! It was a... <laughs> it's pro- it's got to be, like, from the set or something. something. Oh, yeah. If you plan to sell classic five decks by mail to us poor saps who can't make it to the bash, let me know. And don't be afraid to interject some personal stuff into the MKR proceedings. It's all part of Monster Kid Life, dude. We care about you and Brenda, and yeah, Wednesday too. (laughs) And we appreciate whatever behind the scenes you're comfortable with. Thanks for the good work, and keep on monstering. Michael Dodd. Uh, Stay tuned for some stuff about the Classic Five. I'll go over at the end of the show. Um, Let's see. You're very low energy. Are you trying to be quiet? Yes. Uh... It's also 11.45 p.m. on Wednesday (gasps) night. Oh, no. How did it get this late? (laughs) Possibly because I dumped half my day into napping because I felt sick. Hmm. Sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I got almost everything else edited before we did this. Anyway, uh, let's see. I hope you got your wrestling fix in this episode, because even though ostensibly the show was about a movie Mm -hmm. that happened to feature wrestlers, Mm -hmm. Frank and I ended up talking about wrestling more than some listeners may care (laughs) for. (laughs) Uh, But yes, I am a huge fan of Lucha Underground as well. New Japan Pro, uh, I I still watch 
uh, occasionally, but since the people that I really like over there now are over at WWE, specifically AJ Styles, it, it's, it doesn't draw me as much, although I think the Elite's pretty cool. Anyway, oh. uh, Lucha Underground uh, is coming back. Uh, what's been cool is there have been a lot of Lucha Underground stuff crossing over with Impact Wrestling, which is another promotion that I watch. And it's been neat to see like Aerostar and Drago and them doing stuff on Impact Wrestling. It's so interesting to me that there seems to be strong crossover between wrestling and these horror movies. But you know, I don't know what that is. And every once it in a while, it might be like, just liking the campiness. I don't know if it's a campiness <laughs> thing or what, but I feel like every couple of years, some horror magazine like Horror Hound or something will do an article horror in wrestling. And they always bring up The Undertaker, uh, and rightly so. Right. And they, and they typically bring up uh, Father James Mitchell, the sinister minister, who is a, a manager. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the link is. Just like I don't know what the link is between surf music and monster movies. It's just a thing. Well, it sounds like, I mean, he makes a very good point that there is a long history of at least luchadors yeah. being in monster movies. It's one of the things that I love about Lucha Underground, actually, is that there's all these different storylines going on, like supernatural things happening behind the scenes and backstage, and there's a monster, and Drago is literally a dragon, and all this other stuff. And Michael, have you enjoyed reading his bits? Yes. Yeah. And it's been fun They're to well edit those together. They're well written, yeah. Yeah, it's been and a lot of fun to put them together. Every time I read them, I then want to see the pictures of what he's describing, because he mm-hmm. describes it so well. By the way, I don't know why, maybe because I'm... I don't know. I thought the haunted Hulk was the Hulk, but a haunted version of the Hulk, and it makes no sense. <laughs> and then as I was reading about how it was green, I was like, oh, maybe it will go like towards Hulkishness. Nope. Nope. It means Hulk as in the Hulk of a ship. Sure. Not the Hulk. You want to listen to the voicemail yes. from Rich? All right. Hey, Derek, and hey, Brenda. This is Richard, formerly from Wichita, now living in Kansas City, better known as the Monster Movie Kid. It has been far too long since I have called in with a voicemail. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I left a voicemail here at Monster Kid Radio. But your words, your incredibly kind words from a couple weeks back, I had to call in. I had to leave a message. Thank you very, very much for your congratulatory warm wishes on my recent wedding to an incredibly wonderful woman by the name of Carla. Um, I've been on a journey for the last five years, um, four years at least, when I moved to Kansas City and immediately was dealt with the fact that my late wife, Jerry, had breast cancer. That was a two-year journey and struggle and it's people like you Derek and Brenda and everyone out there in the podcast and Facebook world really helped me get through that incredibly dark two-year period of time that despite all of the positive thoughts unfortunately we still lost Jerry now more than two years ago which led to an incredibly even darker year of recovery and grief and bouncing back and a refocused approach on life. And, um, you know, Brenda, you said something about how I was kind of getting through this 
very smoothly or something along those lines. And, you know, yes and no, because I really struggled that first year. Um, I didn't really openly talk about it as much because whenever I went to Facebook, I tried to really focus on positive aspects, but it was a daily struggle. I dealt with it every single day and it was listening to podcasts or talking on Facebook that helped me get through day by day by day to the point that I I reached when I just I, I I kind of I guess you can say I, I recovered to an extent. You never really fully recover, but I reached a point where I just I loved life. I embraced life. Um, I chose to go that path and go down a darker path. And um, you know, once I reached that moment, uh, and I was just looking for somebody new, somebody to not replace what I lost. I really wasn't even looking for. A serious relationship. I just wanted to go out and have fun again with somebody. Um, and um, that's kind of when I found Carla. And it just it just happened, really. I mean, we just kind of stumbled upon each other via eHarmony, an eHarmony success story. And I got to tell you, she is a nerd like me. Uh, we love the same things. I'm introducing her to things. I mean, she always loved like science fiction and fantasy. I'm introducing her to the monster movies, and she's loving them all, all of them. And she uh, she really is my my soulmate and my uh, my monster buddy. I guess is is one way to put it. Um, just came back from an amazing honeymoon trip, and uh, just case in point. On the way back, we decided to stop off at the world's largest toy museum in Branson, Missouri. Um, it's just the spur of the moment stuff like that, that she is the perfect partner in my life. But I wouldn't have reached the point that I was ready to move on and open my heart to somebody new if it wasn't for people like you, Derek, you, Brenda, and all the people within the podcast community, I really want to give a special thank you to Jeff Owens. I met Jeff in the summer of 2016. He never knew Jerry. He met me when I was probably at my lowest and has become one of my very best friends of all time. Um, we obviously, we do the podcast together. We get together all the time, but um, he helped me. And I don't even think he realized he was doing it, but um, his kind words which kind of spurred on your kind of words a few weeks back. I just really want to say thank you to Jeff, um, who was one of my best friends uh, during a very dark period of time in my life and um, is somebody I most consider like a brother. Really, he is a brother of mine. Um, okay, getting mushy. Thank you, though. Thank you for those kind words, and thank you to everybody out there. I'm incredibly happy. I'm in a very happy place right now, and it's because of all of you. That is an incredibly fantastic side benefit of this community that we have started by embracing our monster kids and our inner monster kids and talking about these movies that we love. We get to form incredible friendships, some of which are virtual, some of which, you know, we finally get to meet people in the real world like you, Derek, last year at Monster Bash. So thank you for all of that. I'm going to segue by saying that while I won't be able to attend Monster Bash this year, there's been um, some unfortunate real life things that popped up 
as in I have to get a new air conditioner. Um, yeah, that wasn't planned. Uh, we had to make some tough choices. Uh, Jeff and I were planning on going with, with Carla and uh, finances just weren't going to work out. Both of us had to kind of make a decision that it was the right thing to do financially. With that said, even though we reluctantly won't be at Monster Bash in 2018, I can guarantee you, I know that I will, and Jeff has said as well, and of course Carla, we will be there in 2019. I cannot miss the world premiere of The House of the Gorgon, Joshua Kennedy's new film, and the Hammer Queens that are going to be there. Hopefully, Derek, you'll be there next year. Um, and even though I can't be there this year, I'm going to live vicariously through you and, and everything you're going to do uh, here on the podcast. I know you're going to do panels and you're going to do interviews. And I wish I could be there for it. But I know the next best thing is to listen to Monster Kid Radio. So with that said, I want to thank you again. Uh, I know this is a bit long-winded, but it's been a while. And you know me, I get to talking. So thank you again to you and everyone out there. Um, and I'm going to keep listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care, my friends. You know, Rich. Yeah. You're the man. He, he is. He really is. And um, we talked a little bit about this uh, previously when Jeff called in or left a message about something with, with Rich. He um, Every time he talked about Carla when I was in the car with him at Monster Bash or when we were just hanging around at the hotel, man, he just lit up, dude. Mm. It was awesome. And yeah. I am so stoked i i knew that he wasn't going to make the monster bash i was actually talking yeah. to steve turek earlier today and he mentioned it and uh i didn't realize jeff also wasn't going to make it um steve knew and told me and mm. was like oh man and i wish there was something i could do to make it so that you guys could come the way you guys made it for that i could come but i get it and i understand totally so i wanted to say that yeah. i hope I didn't foolishly say something that implied that it was easy for him to oh, no. move on. I don't that would that was terrible. I it was awful. Don't think that was the implication. I think I think what you were commenting on and in, in, in the intent was that the way he was presenting mm. made it I don't want to say make it seem easy because that kind of lessens it too, but made it seem like Yeah. Rich is a strong dude. Yes. He is a really strong man. And, and, and emotionally, he's given me a ton of support uh, when my brother passed last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember. Rich, um, Richard sent me a letter. And, and it was a really, really good letter. And yeah. it was very touching and very helpful and meaningful. Uh, he even timed it right. He's like, you know, I wait. I wanted to wait until everybody else got done sending you the condolences because yeah. I know it's still going to eat at you later. And, and and he was right. Rich is a smart, smart guy and uh, a strong guy. And and I am so glad. And I, I think we're all very lucky that he decided to choose that, that path to just kind of embrace things because now he's got Carla and he's yeah. even happier. And, yeah. and we get to have a happy Rich. And that's amazing. It is amazing. Well, and I'm just happy for him. Yeah. How neat that it aligned so well. Rich is awesome. Jeff is awesome. The tribe, the group that we have through this community is amazing. Yes. And uh, yeah, dude, I don't know what else to say. I really don't. Aww. I'm feeling kind of talkative and talky, but I don't know what to say that you didn't already say, Rich, because I can just turn around and say right back at your brother. It's true. It's true. I'm sorry you won't get to see him at Monster Bash, but 
I don't know. I don't know how you made this time happen, but hopefully you can pull it off again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I wanted to say. So 2019. So it's not my story to tell, but I have talked to Joshua Kennedy about the premiere of uh, House of the Gorgon and the production and the post-production of House of the Gorgon. Mm -hmm. And there's some very, very exciting things happening. But I don't think I can talk too much more about it other than it's going to be awesome. Yep. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up, hon? I think you realized how late it was and you're like, we need to wrap this up. So, Yeah, it just took a little longer than I expected. And just getting worn down. My jaw hurts. So I apologize for not having as much energy. You don't have to apologize, hon. I know, whatever. I I appreciate you doing the uh, collectible segment. Of course. But even if there's a week where you can't do anything, I'm sure Michael Dodd will be fine. Uh, with 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 it being pushed back a little bit, and that's that's fine. Okay. You know, it is what it is. Yeah. But thank you for your being yeah. here today. Thanks this for time. having me. Thanks for always being so nice, everybody. Thank you. Christopher Lee and Bert Eklund star in Anthony Schaffer's internationally award-winning fable of the ancient gods, The Wicker Man, the most controversial film of the decade. Everywhere I go on this island, it seems to me I find degeneracy. There is brawling in bars, there is indecency in public places. And there is corruption of the young, and now I see it all stems from here. It stems from the filth taught here in this very schoolroom. <laughs> Paganism, human sacrifice, the wicker man. Oh my God! Christ! At the Meadowbrook Cinema. Hi, this is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans? Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horror Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. Of Dr. M. We dare not show you the rest of this scene. It is too shocking to watch. Black Pit of Dr. M. I'm innocent. I'm being hung for a crime that's not mine. 
please bear with us. We must leave the rest of this sequence to your imagination. It is too diabolical for you to take. Black Pit of Dr. M. <laughs> We must apologize. The shocks you are missing would make your blood run cold. Not since the cabinet of Dr. Caligari has the screen been so filled with the eerie, the shocking, the incredible, the diabolical. We warn you, see it only if you can take sudden shocks, shattering terror. Black Pit of Dr. M. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you guys and gals for tagging along for this week's episode, for this adventure into luchador monster science fiction uh, genre film. It was just a lot of fun to really talk about these movies. I've recorded three-fifths. Well, I guess at this point it'd be two-fourths because this one's already on the feed. I have two more recordings coming up later this month, one with Jason Giaconetti and one with Jonathan Inbody. I've got the recording with Mark Peterson, which is what you're going to hear next week on the show and the following week. It was a mega conversation. We talk about two different movies, and that's coming up next time on the show. Between now and then, though, check out monsterkidradio.net. That's where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes, including the episode list of what's coming out this month on the show, the different titles. I've had some requests on Facebook asking what movies we're going to be covering so that they can play along at home, I guess. We need to make a Monster Kid Radio home game, right? Something like that. So you can play along. as I don't know what that would look like. But I do know what the classic five-card game would look like. I am so close to having a full deck ready to order and proof here at home. And I am definitely going to have them available at Monster Bash for sale. Still not decided on the price, but I'm leaning around $20 for the core deck. Stay tuned for more information about that. Now, of course, if you can't make it to Monster Bash, I'll make them available for sale online as well. Once I figure out the logistics of how that works, I'll make sure you guys and gals know how to do it. And of course, I'll make sure I have the information on monsterkidradio.net as well. Our contact information is over on our website, but I'm just going to read it off to you. Monsterkidradio at gmail.com is how you send us an email, or you can call and leave us a voicemail by calling 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. You can always call and leave a voicemail or send us a message about anything that you've heard here on the show, whether it's this episode or the previous 367. I mean, we got a lot of episodes available for you. And if you want to go back and listen to all of them, I would love to hear your thoughts on them all. Speaking of old episodes, this is something that Brenda and I have been talking a lot about. We had an old podcast, a podcast that we produced before we launched, before I launched Monster Kid Radio. That podcast was called Mail Order Zombie, and it was about zombie media, movies, TV, comic books. We even covered a zombie opera once. It was a successful show. We had a lot of fun producing the show, met a lot of great people, and just for the legacy of it, we've kept the Mail Order Zombie feed open. We're starting to look at our budget. We need to cut some things, and that includes the mail-order zombie feed. Now, that's not going to happen until the beginning of June. Uh, then it will go away. But in the meantime, if you are interested in preserving any of those mail-order zombie episodes, they're available on iTunes. And I believe, let me double-check, this is the most exciting podcasting in the world. Oh, I didn't realize that. MailOrderZombie.com is no longer available. But 
If you go to mailorderzombie.libsyn.com, everything is still there. So if you're interested in saving that information, there it is. But come June 1st, it is going away. A couple of events I want to talk about. Now, I'm not going to be there. I haven't been there in a couple of years, but I know a lot of listeners of Monster Kid Radio are going to Crypticon Seattle, which is this upcoming weekend, May 4th through the 6th. That's in Seattle at the Doubletree Hotel. What I'm really excited about hearing about is Monos Returns, having its world premiere with Jackie Naaman Jones in attendance, as well as Diane, and I think it's pronounced Maori, who played the mother in the original Monos, The Hands of Fate. It's so cool. You heard Joe Sherlock talk about it here on the show not too long ago. I'm really stoked to hear how it goes over and how the event was for everybody. So if you're in the Crypticon area, no, the Seattle area, go to Crypticon, and I'd love to hear what it was like. Give us a call and maybe call us from the convention floor. Also, if you are in the Portland, Oregon area, specifically if you are in the Beaverton area, the Pals bookstore over there, there is going to be a signing by Victoria Price. It's happening on Wednesday, May 23rd at 7 p.m. at the Pals Books at Cedar Hills Crossing location. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to this. She'll be doing a signing for her book, The Way of Being Lost, A Road Trip to My Truest Self. It's a good book. I recommend it. And if you're in the area, drop by, say hi to Victoria. She's super cool. Tell them that you heard about this event here on Monster Kid Radio. And well, you may even see me in the audience. That's it. Why don't we go ahead and wrap up the show? I got to eat some dinner, then edit this show and put it out in the feed. Thanks for listening once again. And of course, thanks to the band, the Huaraches, which is a surf band out of Kingston, Ontario. They have a new album coming up called Curl Up with the Huaraches. And we're using their song Breakfast of Challengers from that upcoming album to open and close the show. You can find them at thehuaraches.bandcamp.com. They spell their name H-U-A-R-A-C-H-E-S. So it's thehuaraches.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes or just go to their website. Again, link in the show notes. Can't wait to talk about some more Luchador movies next week, but between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Breakfast of Challengers. Like I said, that song is from the new album, Curl Up with the Wiraches by the Wiraches. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Or should I say adios? Adios.